The scripture reading uh, for today is Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. They say, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, uh, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put it, uh, you shall put into the ark the testimony I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on the, its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to, toward one another. Toward the mercy seat shall face the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony I shall give you. There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Thank you, Todd. <clears throat> You can have your Bible open to the book of Exodus. We're continuing in our study of the book of Exodus this week. And uh, the text that we're going to be covering is Exodus 25.1 through 31.18. Oh, my lands, how are we going to cover all that? <laughs> we're not. It's a large section that's primarily describing the building of the tabernacle, the building of the Ark of the Covenant, which was part of the, that section that Todd read, as well as the clothing and the uh, uh, ceremony for setting apart the priests uh, for Israel. And uh, there's a lot of other things, the building of the uh, bronze altar and the building of the, um, essentially the bathtub where they washed before they did their ceremonies, and then the pots and pans and the tables. We're just going to cover three things, though. Ark of the Covenant the tabernacle, and the clothes that the priests wear. And I will leave it in your trustworthy hands to maybe go back later this afternoon and read uh, the, the other parts of it. It's very, very helpful. And the, the topic or the title of the message today is how to draw near to God. How to draw near to God. We're going to look at uh, these important things in the life of the people of Israel, understand what God was trying to communicate about himself to the people at that time, and then understand how those same things that are true about God for all of time also tie in with us as believers after the cross of Christ. That the truth of who God is and how we draw near to him is consistent even though we don't uh, worship in a tabernacle. 
And even though we don't have an Ark of the Covenant, I want, to, want us to look at how do we draw near to God knowing what he has told us about uh, himself. And, uh, and we need to think about this in terms of relationships. When you think of relationships in your life, this is something you're used to doing, but we're not necessarily used to thinking about God in this way. So if, if you have a relationship in your life where things have gotten a little sideways on you, which of course is their fault, we all know that. They were totally rude and I was completely calm and understanding, right? Um, we're thinking, well, what do I need to do in order to mend fences? What do I need to do to meet them where they are? What is the situation between myself and them? Where do we meet together to somehow patch things uh, up? Or if, if in a professional environment, you may be thinking, how do I gain influence? How do I gain uh, credibility with those above me that maybe when a, a promotion is coming up, I would be one that's considered for it. And so you'll, you'll think of ways that you could uh, connect with people in the right way, in the professional ways, that somehow those connections would be made. And what we tend to do very naturally is sort of put ourselves in the other person's shoes and think about, well, how am I going to approach them in a way that leads to a relationship that's maybe beneficial for me but also beneficial for them? See, this is very normal. In fact, the fact that I'm describing it feels a little bit dull. You're like, well, of course we do that. And we do it to varying degrees of success. And then we come to God and we say, I get to approach him however I want. What God needs from me, and then I decide in what manner, in what ways I am going to relate to God. Isn't this funny? In every relationship in our life, somehow we want to connect with the other person, keeping in mind where they're at, Right? But then when it comes to our relationship with God, sort of our default position is I get to decide how I'm going to approach him. One of the things we learn from the building of the tabernacle is we need to figure out not what we want to do to approach God. We need to have a clear understanding of who God is that we might approach him appropriately. And so when we say it about God, that seems very religious. Oh, he's such a stick in the mud that he only accepts people a certain way. But in every other relationship in your life, you don't have a problem with that, do you? In every other relationship, you seem perfect. we all seem perfectly content to say, well, I want to figure out where they're at so we can have a, a back and forth relationship. So this is nothing unusual. And what we want to know is how do we draw near to God knowing something about him from uh, the scripture? So let's begin in chapter 25 of Exodus. And you can find it there if you'd like. Exodus chapter 25 uh, beginning in verse 10, this is the section that uh, Todd read for us, and it's a description of the building of the Ark of the Covenant. So I want to sort of summarize what I want us to think about here in this way. How do we draw near to God? The first thing is this. Agree that he isn't the one that left. How do we draw near to God? First step when we think about the Ark of the Covenant is this, is we need to agree he isn't the one that left. I don't know if you've ever gone bowling. Over here at Lava Lanes, you can go bowling, and if you tell the attendant when you're checking in, you can tell them, I want to have the ability to raise up the bumpers. You know what the bumpers are? They're little things in the gutter. They raise up. Apparently, it's for the kids, but... <laughs> you know, life hack. Tell them it's for the kid, and then you put it on yours. I mean, it's not that complicated, and you never get a gutter ball. It's incredible. So you raise up the bumpers, and so then it doesn't, you don't get a gutter ball, so when the kids are thrown down, it kind of bumps back and forth, and it takes about 20 minutes for the ball to get down there, depending on how hard they throw it. 
So on the one hand, the bumpers come up and it's great because there's no chance of a gutter ball, right? What's the, other, what's the problem though? The bumpers come up. Everybody looks at the lane and goes, oh, you're terrible at bowling. So the bumper, it's a sign. On the one hand, it's a help because you don't get a gutter ball. On the other hand, it's a sign that says, bowling is not my primary activity of recreation. I came out here because my friends invited me. I was too embarrassed to say no. So they construct the ark, and everything about the ark is intended to communicate, God will meet with you. And everything about the ark of the covenant is intended to communicate in spite of the fact that you blew it so bad. It's a sign on the one hand that says God will meet with you. On the other hand, you need mercy. What is the name of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant? Did you hear it when Todd read it? It's the you're awesome seat. So come hang out with Papa, right? No. What's it called? The mercy seat because you need it. Everything about the Ark of the Covenant on the one hand is to communicate that God is able to be communicated with and to be met with, and he wants to meet with his people. On the other hand, it is the mercy seat on purpose. So it's, a, it's an ark. It's not terribly big, a couple of feet long, a couple of feet wide. It's made of wood and then overlaid with gold inside and out. So it's a very valuable um, box, essentially. Had poles that were also made of wood that were covered with gold, and the poles were put into rings at the base of the ark, on the legs of the ark, and the poles never came out of the ark. They were left in it always. Even though they were put in rings, they were to never be taken out of the ark. The mercy seat was essentially the lid. It wasn't a chair. It was the lid, and it had two angels, two cherubim, that were hammered out of gold. So the, the box was a, a wooden box overlaid with gold, but the cherubim were solid gold angels. So some very skilled workers. In fact, we learn later it's workers who are filled by the Holy Spirit with the skill to craft this beautiful ark. And the Ark of the Covenant, we'll learn when we get to the tabernacle, was placed in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. There were three sections of the tabernacle, the general courtyard, then there was the holy place, and then there was the Holy of Holies. And the, and the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, and the Bible says, God says, he dwells there on the mercy seat, and that's where people would meet with God. Look what is in the Ark of the Covenant, verse 16 of Exodus 25. You shall put into the ark the testimony I shall give you. What is going into the ark? The stone tablets that God gave Moses from the mountain. More specifically, the second set of stone tablets, because he dropped the first set. We'll cover that next week when we cover the golden calf situation. So he is going to take the stone tablets of the covenant, the covenant of God with his people, the law, and put those into the Ark of the Covenant. So you've got the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not worship an idol. You shall not envy your neighbor's ox. It all goes into the box, into the Ark of the Covenant. We come in to meet with God, and contained in the place of our meeting is the law, which tells us all the things we must not do to know God, and what do we learn immediately when we look at the law? Wait, I do all of those things. I'm varsity at all of those things. 
And so in the Ark of the Covenant is the confirmation we don't measure up with God, and so therefore on top of it is what? The don't worry about it seat. The mercy seat. The mercy seat, though, that the, the a high priest would have to come in and offer blood to atone for the sin, the broken, the way we have broken the covenant. So we draw near to God. When we come near to God, the Ark of the Covenant says, I agree with you, God. It is amazing that I can have relationship with you, but everything about this relationship is intended to communicate to my heart and my soul, I need what? Mercy. I need mercy. To meet with God at his place is to assume that I need mercy. Look at verse 22 of Exodus 25. There, that is, at the Ark of the Covenant, at the mercy seat, I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that are on the Ark, I will speak to you. So how do I draw near to God? The first thing I must recognize is I need mercy. The reason I am able to have a conversation with God at all is not because I am worthy, is not because I'm religious, it's not because I'm spiritual, it's not because I keep my nose clean, it's because God is merciful. It's because God has mercy on me. I recognize when I come to God I cause the problem, not him. When I come to God, I must understand the terms of the relationship is the reason there's any difference in gulf between us is not because he moved away, it's because I did. Not because he is rude, because I rejected his ways. How do I draw near to God? The first thing we must do is agree that he is the one who left. If you'll look with me, at um, uh, Exodus 25, verse 40. A little bit further on down. Exodus 25, verse 40. Same chapter, a little further on. And this is the instructions that were given to Moses. See to it that you make them. That is everything he's describing. He's describing the altar covenant, describing the tabernacle, describing tongs and trays and everything else that they build for this thing. See to it that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So how much leeway did he have in making the Ark of the Covenant? None. It had to look a particular way. I want it to look this way. And Moses goes, you know, I took an interior decorating class online, and I'm not getting a real uh, feng shui feel uh, from this deal. And God said, I, I really don't care. I want you to make it according to the pattern I have given you. We'll discover in a little bit in the next section. The pattern God is giving him is not arbitrary. The pattern God is giving to Moses is intended to reflect not only God's nature, but it is a shadow of things heavenly. God is saying, build it this way because the tabernacle, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, everything that I am giving you is intended to reflect a reality that is occurring in heavenly places. I am meeting with you in a way invading the brokenness of earth and giving you a peek into the glories of heaven and you will meet with me on my terms because I reside in heaven, God is saying. Everything that is done here is a shadow of, just a glimpse of the glories of God in heaven 
and revealing to us that in order to relate to the eternal, spiritual, heavenly God, we must recognize the law is broken inside the mercy seat, and because of a sacrifice of blood, that can be washed away and we can relate with God. So I draw near to God recognizing He is not coming to meet with me on my terms. He is calling me by His mercy to come meet with Him on His terms, recognizing my sin, my need for sacrifice, and the fact that my rebellion against Him has excluded Him from my life. And He's saying, I'm going to build a piece of real estate for you that gives you a little doorway into heaven so you can come meet with me according uh, to my terms. You need forgiveness. What did the people of Israel think they needed? Bread. They thought they needed food. And of course, that doesn't seem terribly unreasonable. Now, right now, you've just come from maybe the fireside room and you had three donuts. Like, well, I don't know. I, could, I think I need God more than food. Yeah, if, we, if I went till 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you started getting a little lightheaded, would you say the same thing? So I don't need any more Bible. I need, I need, I need lunch. And, and God really is saying an astounding kind of thing. Of all the things you might think you need, the one thing you actually need is to recognize your separation from me, and the only way to find access to me is to meet with me on my terms in heaven. And to do that, you must come to the mercy seat where we recognize we have violated his law and the only way for us to meet with God is for him to express mercy on us and to receive from us a sacrifice of blood. How do we draw near to God? Agree he isn't the one who left. Now this, you may be saying, well, that's great for people who don't believe in God. Listen, this is something we will carry with us every day of the rest of our Christian life. Especially the longer we are Christians, we tend to think, okay, I'm finally getting it. Oh, that's a terrible thought. The trajectory of a Christian life, as long as we're diving deep into the Word of God and getting to know God, is realizing over the course of time how little we get it. How do you know you're doing the Christian life right when it feels like you're not getting the Christian life right? Because the more you realize that you're not God, the better you're doing. And to come to the mercy seat is to recognize day in and day out, I get to come to the Lord in prayer. Why? Because he is just that merciful. And he has received the sacrifice that we might have access to him. So let me uh, close this section with this. What is the posture of our approach to God based on the Ark of the Covenant and the law and the mercy seat? Our posture as we approach God, and what I mean by that is, what is our attitude as we approach God? Number one, it's joy. God lets us come see him. He didn't have to, did he? He could have said, oh, never mind, you guys are awful. And then we just all die. So in joy, we can come to God and say, I cannot believe, this is unbelievable. God has given us access to himself. It's joyous. Um, uh, heartfelt joy saying God allows me to have access to him. He has not uh, cast me aside. He has allowed me to meet with him, albeit on his terms. But on the other hand, it's joyous humility. We're, we're filled with joy that God would let us come to him. On the other hand, we ought to always maintain a posture of, God, you didn't have to. You are just that merciful. God has shown mercy to me, and he continues to show mercy to us. He desires us, and all we have to bring with him, as one author said, 
is our sin, and he receives us with that. And some of us should think, well, of course, you come to the Lord for mercy, and he gives you mercy, and therefore you won't need it anymore because you stopped sinning, right? Anyone? Any takers? No, it turns out we're going to need his mercy again tomorrow, aren't we? And you said tomorrow? Like 10 minutes. We're going to need his mercy again. So our posture is always coming to God. Man, this is unbelievable. I, we can be filled with joy that God receives us into his presence, but as we come to his presence, we also ought to be filled with humility and saying, Lord, I, I, I need your mercy again today. How do we draw near to God? We need to first agree that he isn't the one who left. All right, next thing. Even though we might go into God and we might say, Lord, receive me based on your mercy, and we say, Lord, I'm glad to hear that you received me, we need to understand that we are not the ones who initiated this relationship. So how do we draw near to God? Secondly, I would suggest this. We need to trust that he came near first. We didn't seek him out. He sought us out. How do we draw near to God? Trust that he came near first. Why don't you turn down to Exodus 26, verses 1 through 37. I'm not going to read it all. You can read it while I'm talking. No, I'm serious. It's fine. It's the building of the tabernacle. It's a large structure. It's essentially a, a, a series of tents, uh, two, maybe three tents, depending on how you divide it up. They've got a very, very large courtyard, and it's essentially walls of fabric that are held up by poles with silver bases. And they create this very large courtyard, and the opening is essentially some different colored pieces of fabric. And when they set it up, those openings always faced east. Then you come into that courtyard, and only certain people were allowed in there. And then there was another very large tent, but that large tent was covered. It didn't have an opening. This courtyard had no roof on it. Uh, the large tent in the, in the middle uh, was a covered, had a roof on it, a fabric roof, and it had two sections in this large tent that's inside the courtyard. Uh, one section was the holy place, and it would have had a table with a bunch of bread on it. It would have had a, a golden lamp stand, and it would have had an altar in it that had a place for you to burn incense. And the priests would go in there, and they would bake bread, and the priests were allowed to eat the bread, and they would keep the candles lit, and it was one guy's job just to go in there all the time and trim the wicks. A wick trimmer. I've never trimmed a wick in my entire life. I didn't even know that was a thing until I read my Bible. The things you learn in your Bible, there was a thing as a wick trimmer. And they had trays and bowls, and they had different things that they would did. And then there was a great curtain, a great barrier, and that went into the Holy of Holies. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once per year on the Day of Atonement, and he would have to take a sacrifice of blood with him, and God's presence was there over uh, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. So everything about this tabernacle is in intended to communicate that God is with us, that God has come and he is with his people. You might think about this in such a way like a, a foreign government do, uh, coming for a state visit. If a foreign government comes for a state visit, what you're going to tell when they come. There's a delegation and there is, uh, there is security and there's lots of cars and there's flags and it's all set up to communicate uh, the, the visitor from the foreign country is here. But we have to understand something about this tabernacle that's a little different. When a, when a dignitary visits another country, it's because they want to foster continued goodwill between the countries. They will come over and visit, then they're going to shake hands, and they're going to take pictures and release mutual press statements and 
Uh, it's always very awkward to see them shaking hands and smiling and all these sorts of things. But what's weird about the tabernacle is God has come as a delegation to us. He didn't have to. And he has come as a foreign dignitary, as a delegation to us, in the midst of the fact that we were in outright war against him. If we were at war with another country, it would be very unusual for them to make a state visit to us. Hey, I know we're fighting this battle over on our soil, and thousands and thousands of people are dying on a daily basis, but how about I come over and we have dinner together? And what would we say? Take a hike. When you surrender, we'll have you over for dinner. We'll have you for dinner. But God doesn't wait for there to be peaceful relations to visit. God, in the midst of outright war between us, where we have rejected him and said, we are a better God than you, he has made his presence known even in the midst of open conflict. But everything about his tabernacle is intended to communicate I am coming to meet with you, and I'm coming to meet with you on my terms, and my terms are holiness. You can come into my tabernacle. You can come in and meet with me as long as you meet my standards of rightness, purity, holiness. Everything about the tabernacle was intended to communicate in order to get with God, you must meet his righteous requirements. And in fact, most people in the Israel couldn't do it. You had to be a priest. And most priests couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place, and only one priest could go into the Holy of Holies. The entire tabernacle was intended to communicate, you can't get to me. The only way you can be in my presence is if I come to you. God is communicating to us. He is holy. He is separate. He is other. He is not us. He is above us. He is God. He does not need us, but he desires relationship with us. As one uh, Bible uh, author says this, what is it that we might bring to God that he needs? Is there anything you might bring to God where he goes, oh, thank you for showing up. I had completely run out of AA battery. No. He says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Why are you bringing me offerings thinking I've run out of food? Why are you bringing me money thinking I'm broke? Why are you bringing me uh, your good behavior as though I'm lacking in righteousness? God comes to us needing nothing, and he comes to communicate to us, you can know me when you are righteous like I am righteous. The tabernacle is intended to communicate that God is holy, God is other, God is not us. We are not God. It also is intended to communicate that God wants to make all things right again. When we sinned against God, we ruined everything. Have you noticed? You'll know, if you haven't, you will in a bit. You know, it's just, it's been wrecked. People die. We have funerals. Cars break down. You lose jobs. You get hungry. You get sick. People are annoying sometimes when they're driving. When we're driving. God comes and he says, I want to show you that I'm going to begin a work of redemption, of recreating everything whole again. And he starts with a little piece of real estate called the tabernacle and saying, I'm starting here, but I'm going to redo the whole thing. It's all going to be done. 
I'm going to fix it all. But for now, this one place is, will be called the holy place. We do not have to seek God in heaven. He comes to us, and he has come here to redo everything that we have broken. I'm going to look at Romans. Uh, by Romans, I mean Hebrews. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read several verses. I think up on the screen we'll have uh, one of the verses. And Hebrews chapter 8 says this. The author of Hebrews has been talking about the tabernacle, and I'm sort of picking it up in the middle. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have a high priest. What does the high priest do once a year in the tabernacle system? He goes into the, ta into the Holy of Holies and uh, offers an offering to God at the mercy seat. But we have a high priest. We have one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, that is Jesus, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, but they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying this, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, it's up on the screen for you. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant as he mediates one that is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, faultless there would have been no occasion for the second one. So what we're learning from the author of Hebrews is the tabernacle was set up. It was a reflection of a heavenly reality that Jesus has now completely fulfilled. Jesus now ministers on our behalf in heaven at the right hand of the Father as our high priest, but he comes with even better promises than the old covenant seemed to offer. The old covenant said, follow these 17,000 rules, it seems like, and you can have a relationship with God. And Jesus comes and says on the cross, it is finished, takes his own blood to the presence of the Father and says, all who have received me by faith are forgiven. And so we have access, not to an earthly tabernacle, but the presence of God himself in heaven because of the better promises of Jesus Christ. We come to God not in any way we want. How do we come to God? Through Christ alone. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. You can turn there. It's just a couple of chapters away. This is what he says. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What? If you were a Jew living around Moses, you'd say, no way. Nobody gets to do that. That one guy with the fancy outfit, he gets to do it once a year. I don't have a fancy outfit, and I'm not that guy, so I can't do that. And, G and then the author here said, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places. We just go strolling in. Look what it says. We get to enter by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. He's talking about the tabernacle. Between the holy place where the incense was and the golden lampstand was and that tasty warm bread was, there was a curtain. And you had to walk through that curtain to get into where the Ark of the Covenant was. And now he's saying here, 
we get to walk through that curtain to go into the holy place by the blood of Christ. But look how it describes the curtain in verse 20 of Hebrews 10. We get to go the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his what? Flesh. The curtain is the broken body of Christ, his blood shed for us. So we go through Christ's sacrifice for us, acknowledging that we are sinners in needing of grace, and we walk into the holy place, and God receives us, not because we're awesome, but because we are covered in the blood of Christ. Let us then draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with our wa bodies washed with pure water. He's now saying there isn't just one priest that walks in. Everybody who's in Christ just walks in. Sprinkled clean because we finally have figured out how to behave right, correct? No. Sprinkled clean because Jesus behaved right. And, our, and his blood covers our sin. We walk into the Holy of Holies not because we're awesome, but because he is. We walk into the Holy of Holies not because we're righteous, but because he is. That's what we call better promises. We draw near to God recognizing he drew near to us first. He set up the tabernacle on earth first. Jesus came as a man first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the one taking the initiative. We're the ones sitting on the sidelines saying, where's the bread? I'm thirsty. Where's the water? God, I got bills. Where are you going to bring me the money for my bills? Oh, now you're annoyed with me. But that's what we do. God says, well, what I've done is I, I, maybe I didn't say it right. I've given you full access to the presence of God with no concern whatsoever on how you've done so far in your Christian life, and you worry about your bills. And you're saying, well, my bills are a big deal. Yeah, they are, but not that big a deal. He is saying we can draw near to God, not because we're awesome, but because he drew near first. There is nothing better than the fact that God has drawn near to us first, that we might have a relationship with him and access uh, to God. One other place we're going to look in this section, John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1. You all know this uh, section of scripture. I'm going to read uh, like 18 verses of it, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. I'm just going to tell you right away, we're not going to get into it. It's talking about Jesus when it says Word. Are we clear? Okay, I mean, we could do a whole sermon on that, uh, but we'll save that one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him. Uh, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's a weird sentence. Okay, in Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is God. Jesus was God. Jesus has always existed. He is eternal. No beginning, no end. Born as a man, but has always existed. He created everything by the word of his mouth. He is God. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Just a quick note. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about you there, just so you know. Uh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Parentheses, that means Gentiles get in too. Verse 14, this is what I want to focus on. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory, uh, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, I'm reading the ESV. That word dwelt there, your translation may be better than mine, tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle in Exodus is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle of tabernacles is Jesus himself. The tabernacle was intended to communicate there's a bit of God showing up on earth and it's coming, it's going to get better. John 1.1 comes around and says, the tabernacle is here. He has made his tabernacle among us. The, for Moses, he gives the law. Look at verse 16 of uh, John chapter 1, I should say. From Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Okay, do you do math ever? Not on purpose. There's a greater than sign, like alligator. If you learned it, math correctly, the alligator eats the bigger one. You know how that? Okay, okay. Jesus is greater than Moses. Grace and truth, grace and truth is better than law. That's what he's saying here. He's not being rude to Moses. He's not saying Moses wasn't awesome. He's not saying the law wasn't good. He's saying, but there's something better than law because you can't pull law off. There is Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. So we have a tabernacle of Moses. How do you get into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Moses? Follow the law. How do you get into the tabernacle of Christ? Grace and truth. Now, on the one hand, it's a better uh, promise because all can enter who will receive his grace and truth. But we must be very clear. You don't get to go in any old way. You go in through the flesh of Jesus alone. It is through Jesus we receive grace and truth. Not ever whatever idea we want. We receive the presence of God through Jesus himself because we need mercy again today. Jesus, as God, made God known to us. I might just ask this question before we go to the last section. What place in the, is there then in the Christian life or in the body of Christ for self-righteousness? What place is there in the Christian life for saying I'm getting my, I've got my act together? There isn't any. I use this illustration all the time. You're probably tired of it. If you want to compare yourselves to others, fine. I mean, it's lame, but go ahead. You're going to do it anyway. You're human. So this is what you're competing in. You both are standing on the shore in San Diego, and you have a competition to see who can throw a rock to Hawaii. You both throw your rock. One person throws his rock like 30 feet further. When you look at the distance you threw your rocks compared to Hawaii, what's the difference between the two throws? There isn't any. But this is what we do. Oh, you struggle with greed? Well, fortunately for me, I just struggle with going to church too much. I really need to simmer it down a little. It's so ridiculous. We look down on others because their sin is different than ours. There's no place for it. It's an offense to the cross. The cross says they paid for their sin, and they paid for your sin, so get over yourself. They sin different than you? Congratulations. Congratulations. 
There is no place for self-righteousness in the body of Christ. God looked for us. We weren't looking for him. How do we draw near to God? Number one, what was it? Agree that it isn't him who left, it was us. Secondly, trust that he came near first as the tabernacle. Okay, finally, how do we draw near to God? Uh, to quote a verse in scripture, walk in the newness of life. Look at Exodus 28, uh, verses 1 through 43. We're not going to read it, but I trust you've been reading it while I've been talking. Or doing something else, I don't know. Walk in newness of life. Now, if you went to the beach and you put on a suit, suit and tie, suit coat, nice shoes, you went to the beach, you put out your, your towel and you lay down on the beach. Can we all agree that would be weird? By the same token, if you went to a business meeting and you wore your swimsuit, got your big wide-brimmed hat, keep the sun off, got the sunscreen on your nose, flip-flops, sit down. Wouldn't that, I mean, people would look at you a little strange, wouldn't they? Or if you showed up in church in a hospital gown. This illustration doesn't really work. Hospital gowns are weird in the hospital. <laughs> so that, that, every illustration <laughs> breaks down at a certain point. You're in the hospital. There's absolutely no dignity whatsoever. People are coming and going you've never met, and they're seeing every bit of you, right? So what can we do to add to that? Let's make clothes that cover nothing, right? <laughs> That's an aside. You can just make that... And what we have here is a description of the garments of the priests. Because the garments, what they wore, mattered. Because what they wore mattered to what they were doing and what they were representing about God and his people. So the high priest wore a special underclothes. He had a special shirt on. He had a, a, a special breastplate on. And that breastplate had 12 jewels in it. It had the name of each tribe of Israel written on the jewels. And he had special decision-making jewels that went into a pocket in the breastplate. And he had a special turban that he wore. And it was lots of different colors. And on, on the turban was a, a gold plate that said, Holy to the Lord. I've always wondered about that gold plate because it says in there how much it weighs. I thought, how did he keep that hat on? I mean, it's essentially a turban. You attach a three-pound piece of gold to it. He's, I mean, his neck would hurt at the end of the day. That's why I have trouble reading the Bible. I end up thinking about things that don't matter. Just a couple of things. Look at verse 6. They shall make an ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It'll have shoulder pieces attached to the edges. It'll be joined together. It'll be skillfully woven band on it. shall be made with one piece of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined Linen, verse 15 of Exodus 28, you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work, just like the ephod you're going to make it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns. It's a very colorful outfit. Down in verse 29, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place, that is the mercy seat, to bring to them regular remembrance before the Lord, to bring before God uh, his uh, people. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it to the turban. This is verse 36. By a cord of blue, it shall be on the front 
of the turban. So very particular clothes. And then to become ordained, the priests, it took seven days for the, them to be set aside as priests. And they had to take uh, baths at a certain time and eat certain foods and offer certain sacrifices and, and be splashed with certain fragrant oils and even splashed with, with blood on them from sacrifices to indicate that God was setting them apart for holiness to represent his people uh, for God. And let me summarize it all up this way with just before we move on to three or four references to this in the New Testament. What we see in the clothes of the high priest is a tabernacle on his body. What he is, the description of the clothes of the priest is essentially taking the imagery of the tabernacle and putting it onto the priest. And the priest is now acting as the presence of God for his people in God's presence. He is wearing the tabernacle of God, wearing the location of God. God is with the priest, and then the priest represents us with God. So the priest is to signify one who has the presence of God with them because he is bearing on his person the tabernacle itself. It's the same fabric, same colors, same imagery, and a, a, and a sign on his head, holy to the Lord. He is intended to reflect the, the actions and walk of a person who has God's presence upon him. Walk as one with God tabernacling on him. With God living upon him. And when we recall back to John chapter 1, what did it say Jesus did? Jesus tabernacled among us. And then the Bible says when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit to what? Live within us. And so now God himself as Christians resides in us. He is making his presence as a tabernacle even in us. So when we see the imagery of the priest wearing the tabernacle, we can look at our own Christian lives and say, wait, we have it even better. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Did you hear that? He who is in the Lord, trusts uh, Christ for salvation, becomes one spirit with him. Spirit is indwelling him. Verse 18, therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but sexual immoral sins occur against his own body. Verse 19, it's probably up on the screen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Glorify God with your body. We discover the presence of the Holy Spirit in us as Christians means we are joined with the Lord and the temple of God is now in our person. It's no longer a tabernacle with some guy wearing a fancy outfit. The tabernacle, the, the temple of God is in each believer by the presence of the Spirit of God. And so therefore, how do we draw near to God? We walk in the newness of life as those who act as the tabernacle of God himself. He says it quite plainly. Live as holy as God's temple. No longer submit to sexual immorality because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's dwelling in us. A couple of other verses. By a couple, I mean 12. Galatians 3.27 says this. For as many as were baptized into Christ have what? 
put on Christ. Some translations I, I like better than the ESV here. Yours might say, are clothed with Christ. Does that sound like the high priest? Yes, it does, because it's supposed to. Uh, the guy who wrote that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was a Pharisee. He knew a bit about fancy religious clothes and a bit about the law. And he's saying, you think, you think Aaron's outfit, the high priest, was fancy? We put on the person of Christ himself as our high priest outfit. We don't need a big giant gold plate on our hat that says holy to the Lord. We've got Christ himself who makes us holy to the Lord. Look at Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He's saying this, since we have entered into the holy place by the presence of Christ living in us, therefore make no provision for the flesh. Don't make any avenues in our life for us to indulge in our sinful pleasures. If there are things in our life which lead us to sinfulness, he's saying, take away that provision. Cut off that access and make only provision to act as one who has the Holy Spirit living within us. Serve in Christ and serve for Christ, not for our own fleshly desires. As it turns out, you may have not known this if you haven't been a Christian long. When you become a Christian, your desire for sin does not go away. Anybody agree with me on this? Agree or disagree? Nobody wants to raise their hand. What he is saying, since we know that, let's cut off the opportunities for us to indulge in the flesh because we want to live as those who are tabernacled, who uh, have the dwelling of Christ in us, knowing our flesh is opposed uh, to, to the things of God. Final verse, Romans 6, <clears throat> 4. Romans 6, 4 says this, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, excuse me, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So let's put it all together. There's a tabernacle, which is the presence of God, and the only way to enter the presence of God is to be holy. The only way to be holy is to be that guy wearing the fancy outfit. You're not that guy. So Jesus says, that doesn't work. I'm going to come as a tabernacle, and I'm going to come as your clothing. I'm going to come and be the tabernacle for you where you have access to God, and you put on me. Therefore, you have full access into the Holy of Holies because you wear the righteousness of holiness of Christ. You don't deserve it. You just simply trust it we have the opportunity to walk in newness of life having put on Christ. He is then calling us to live like those who have put on Christ. Another way of saying it, we don't live holy in order to become holy. We want to live holy because we are holy. And it makes all the difference in the world. If you're trying to live the right way to impress God, you are going to burn yourself out in about 20 minutes unless you're really well behaved. However, if you are living holy because God has already done the heavy lifting, there is freedom in setting aside the desires of the flesh because we know they lead to death. How do we draw near to God? Let's wrap it up. Agree that he isn't the one who left. Who left, him or you? On the fence? You almost said you. I'd have to agree with you. We left. He didn't. 
Who drew near first, him or us? He did. We left, he comes to us. So what should we do having put on righteousness of Christ? Walk in newness of life. So here's a couple of questions. We'll close with these things just to get you thinking about your own life. The question isn't, can we draw near to God? Because we can. The question is, will we? The question is not, can we draw near to God? In Christ we can. The question is this, will we? Will we take the time to come to the Lord in prayer? Will we take the time to know him through his word? Will we take the time to engage in fruitful fellowship with other believers? Will we take the time to share the good news of the gospel with non-believers? The question is not, can we draw near to God? The question is, will we? I'm not ending with that. i got like four more questions. Fully loaded here. We go. Will we make no provision for the flesh? Are you willing to remove things from your life that you enjoy because they lead to bad things in your life? Are you willing to say, no, I want to say no to that because it's leading me to my flesh? You say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, I'm not judging, bro. But where is it taking you? I'm not saying stop doing naughty things so that you can be righteous. I'm saying you're righteous. Make no provision to go down that road anymore. And I don't know what that road is for you. But you know what it is. I don't even have to mention it. And the question is, are you ready to cut off that avenue and say, whatever it takes, Lord, I don't want to go down that road anymore. Or do you want to keep taking Jesus down that road? Because I want to remind us, he doesn't go on break when we go down that road. He goes with us. He's there the whole time. Make no provision for the flesh. Are we ready to say no because we know our flesh leads to death and the presence of Christ is life? Okay, next question. Will we worship God? Will we recognize that we get to walk into his presence anytime we want? Will we come to him at church singing with full hearts, full voices, full minds? Are we going to come to God and worship the way God likes, or are we going to come to God and hope that we get to worship the way I like? Two more, and then we're done. Are we ready to set aside guilt and shame? Some of us carry these huge burdens of all the bad stuff I've done. The presence of Christ as my clothing, the presence of Christ as my righteousness means I no longer need to, nor is it appropriate for me to, carry my guilt and shame. It's gone. It's an act of a lack of trust when I say I need to continue to feel bad about what I've done. When he said it is finished, he wasn't kidding. It's finished. Trust him enough to rest in him and let the guilt and shame fall away. Just an aside, guilt and shame is just a tool of the devil to get you to keep on sinning some more. Finally this, will we stay humble? The cross is where we start our, our Christian life, and the cross is where we end it. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. Every single person there needs the blood coming off of it. Maybe there are some of us who have gotten a little too high on our horse about how good we're living the Christian life. It might be time to dial it down and realize we need the cross today as much as we did the day we received it.